Well, I'm glad for the opportunity to, to be with you again, although not happy that uh, Nathan has to be sick in order to do that, but uh, I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity to open your word. And uh, we'll be looking at Zechariah 10 uh, as we've been working our way uh, uh, through the book of Zechariah. We come uh, to the final chapters that really look forward to that day, a coming day. Um, and uh, uh, the first coming of Christ. And uh, these chapters I mentioned uh, are quoted uh, more often in the last week of Christ's life than any other portion of scripture. And uh, I'll try to give an analogy that'll help us maybe understand the importance of that as we begin. So Zechariah in chapter 10, this is God's word. Ask grain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give the showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams, and they and give empty consolation. Therefore, the peoples wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I'll punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him, shall come the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler, all of them. And they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. And they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet, far, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And their children, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they will walk 
in his name, declares the Lord. As we go through the, the book of uh, Zechariah, I'd like to us to, to think about uh, where it is uh, as we begin uh, this evening and uh, the importance or significance of that. Um, and I might compare the Old Testament to a marvelous picture. There's a wonderful picture and you can see it and as you move closer, you see more details. And so first, as you would stand across the room from it, you would see so this magnificent picture scenery, mountains and the sky and the stars, which speak of a creator. And then as you look more, you see there's a wonderful building out there. And its name is heaven. And there's a path that goes to the, to the front door to the welcoming mat. And along the way, there are signposts that indicate this is the right way. This is what you should be looking for. Now, there's another way that's very broad and flat. And if you fall enough, it's going to end in disaster because there's a cliff. And it has various names. Here, referred to in terms of household gods and diviners, sometimes called Moloch or Baal. Sometimes it shows up in the form of a golden cap, but it's all ways that lead away from that one road that leads to God. And then at the bottom of the cliff are the slain who followed that road. And crucial are those signposts that we can see. There's a big one at the beginning that has the name Moses attached to it and says, a prophet like me will arise. And as you move further down, you get to the, to the Psalms and you see another sign that says, God's son the Lord's anointed, which could also be translated Messiah, or even Christ, if you go into the Greek. There's a signpost also in Psalms that says that this is the one who is a, the victorious king that rides out in victory against his enemies. He's of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And you go along and you see some other signs that are labeled Isaiah. And talk about a child being born of a virgin, a male child. Be called Emmanuel. His other names are Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father. He's, we see him as a suffering servant told he's smitten by God and wounded for our transgressions. And you get to Micah and it has a sign that says, coming from the town of Bethlehem. And so as we go through scripture, it's pointing us more and more to that building that has a welcome mat that says, trust in the Messiah that prominently has 
a cross for the entrance. And as you think about that pattern and the structure of the Old Testament, at the very end, there's one last one. It's from the book of Malachi that speaks of Elisha, that the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, John the Baptist. And then there's a whole series in Malachi. So right before the end, God is giving us many witnesses to what to expect in terms of the Messiah. How do we know who the real Messiah is? And so in these final chapters, there's signs that talk about he's going to come humbly on a colt, a foal of a donkey. He's going to be the good shepherd that's going to be struck. He's going to be pierced through. He's going to be valued at 30 pieces of silver that is thrown into the potter. And so, as you would look at the Old Testament, you, we've come to really almost the end. And it's revealing to us to Christ. And so as we think about the, this last few chapters, we need to see how much they speak to us about Jesus Christ, his earthly life, and his kingdom. And as it calls us to trust and the Messiah. That needs to be our response. And so the first point is like the people in Zechariah's day, we're to place our trust in the right place. The God of the universe. The God who is in control of all things. And we see that in verse 1 as it, as it starts this chapter. Ask rain. Why ask rain? What's the significance of that? Well, if you lived in Palestine, the biggest need that you would have really would be for rain. It's a semi-arid land. And depending on how much rain you got, you would have plenty or you would have a lack. And as I understand it in that day, that they, they would have the, the earlier rains and the latter rains. They'd plant in the fall, the, the wheat and the barley and the, the rains in the fall were much more regular. And so the plants would grow. But then you'd come to the spring. And sometimes it would rain and, and sometimes it wouldn't. And if it didn't rain, you'd be in trouble. Your cattle would be not have enough to eat. You wouldn't have enough to eat. And they see still true today. If you would look at the Middle East, if you look at South Sudan, one of their constant prayer requests is, is for rain, that they'd get enough. And so, 
this is their most basic need. And what are they to do? They're to ask for rain, and notice it adds, from the Lord. And if you look in my, like my version has Lord in all capital letters. That's, us, that's the usual convention to indicate one particular name of God. Sometimes uh, referred to as Yahweh, and sometimes Jehovah. But it was the name by which God revealed himself at Moses in the burning bush. It's really his covenant name. The name that indicates that special relationship that he has with his people. I am your God and you are my people. Signaling us that God is not off someplace. But he's a personal God. And knows his people. And knows all about them and their needs and responds to them. He's also described later on in verse 1 as the Lord who makes the storm clouds. Not only is he personal, but he also has power over the weather. And, and later on, several times, he's turned to referred to as Lord of hosts. He's, he's the one in control. So he's the one that can bring the, the rain that they need, who can supply what they need. And so they're encouraged. As this is your most basic need, how do you respond to it? You ask God. You pray for those spring rains. Well, it has a really a powerful message for us today. What is your biggest concern today? And there can be a whole range of things. For someone, it may be their health, it may be a financial crisis going on, it may be feelings of loneliness and cut off. And, and maybe some interpersonal relationship. Perhaps it's a, a job or an important decision. What's the most important issue in your life? Well, the answer is still the same. Pray to the Lord. Seek him. And too often we ignore what's so obvious. There's a recent uh, survey and uh, looked at those who they uh, thought to be Christians. Uh, they de defined it in terms of how many times you worshiped every month. And uh, these are the ones who worship quite regularly. And they asked them some questions and a couple of them about prayer. And two of the responses I found very interesting. Of those who you know, regularly went to worship, 45% said that they did not pray daily. Now, this is a you know, pagan world who doesn't care about God. These were people who 
most days be found in the worship. But they also surveyed the 55% that did pray. And they prayed on an average seven and a half minutes a day. To me, somewhat shocking. I don't knew really to expect that. But if you're trusting in God, if you're looking to God, how can you not pray? How can you spend so little amount of time in prayer each day? And so we're encouraged here in verse 1. Pray. What are the important issues in your life? You to be praying about them and praying to the Lord, to the true God. Because B, as we go on to verse 2, there are lots of wrong places to be placing your trust. And so... Uh, he goes on to mention uh, what some of the people are trusting in household gods. It's a Hebrew teraphim. It's used in Genesis uh, 31 of Rachel as she steals her father's household idols. Laban searches and can't find them. The little god that you would have, and diviners, and false dreams, those who, who pretend that they can see the future, that they can understand what you need to be doing, ways of speak, seeking special knowledge. But at the heart of it, there's always a rejection of God, of not being content with God and his word and what he has told us clearly. And you may be thinking, well, I don't have any household gods. And yet how much are these things around us? You look, there's several places where you can see signs that says palm reader. You know, one block ahead. Or you have the daily newspaper. And you have your horoscope predicting what would be good or bad for you this day. You can pick up the phone and talk to a medium or psychic. You can go into the average department store and buy a Ouija board in their game sections. Always of doing this. Now I trust you're not tempted or trapped by these things, but it's around us. as well as all sorts of Eastern mysticism and, and other things. The other false way is found in verse 3. It's the leaders who are false, the bad shepherds that lead the people astray. They refuse to look to the good shepherd but they'll look to others who point them away from the triune God. And there are many today 
uh, civil leaders, political leaders, uh, intellectual leaders, and even sometimes church leaders who would turn us away. And notice the, the foolishness. They speak utter nonsense. They see lies. They tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. The, the people wander like sheep. The people are afflicted. These things don't help in any way. These people don't help others but waste time and money, actually do harm. And today, so many seek that which is false, spend their time and their energy, their money. The latest self-help guru social influencers, and all the rest. And the question in Zechariah's day was, do you trust the God of the Bible? Do you look to him? Do you pray to him? Or do you look someplace else? The second point we can see from these verses is God is personally concerned for his people and will personally bless them. Again, God is personally involved. He's not just a God that created the world and went off someplace and whatever happens, happens. But we can see his personal concern in two ways. In verse 2 and 3, the attitude that he has toward the bad leaders, when God's people go astray, when they're led in the wrong way. Verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. So despite the, the waywardness, you might remember going back to the Old Testament, the, the, the times that they'd gone into captivity, the Lord of hosts still cares for his people. He's still concerned for what goes on in their lives. And he's still dealing with them graciously. And in verse 3 and following, we see that God's powerful actions to bless. How he's going to help his people. The promise in verse 3 is he will make them like his majestic steed in battle. What a picture. Those sheep that have been wandering are now majestic battle horses. And some of the great leaders of the past were known for their horses. Alexander the Great, and the mighty Bucephalus, his horse, and Robert E. Lee, traveler, men who could count on their horses to stand firm in the midst of battle, were unflappable, unflappable and unflinging. And those who submit to God become like that, invincible in their service to God. And then going on to verse 4, from him, and it's really talking, if you look at context, Judah. And so we have a hint of someone who's going to arise from Judah. And as you look at that particular one, the blessings. Verse 4, he's going to be a cornerstone. That foundation stone 
on which the whole building is built. The gifts, the ability, and sets of lines for a building. That's what the cornerstone does. You can't help but think of Psalm 118, 22, where the cornerstone is rejected by men, but is precious in the sight of God, a, a reference to Jesus Christ. From him is a tent peg. Now, the Hebrew really says just pen, peg. It doesn't have the word tent. And the reference may be to Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 22, verse 22. Isaiah talks about the coming one. Is it talking about Jesus the Messiah? I will place on the shoulders the key of the house of David, and he shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. And then it goes on to say in verse 23, I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And just as a tent peg is used to secure the tent, it's really describing this one who's going to come and is going to secure all the blessings of God for his people. Who's from that line of David. Who's from the tribe of Judah. That line from the tribe of Judah, that king of kings and lord of lords. A fourth image of victory is, is the battle bow that's used to, to conquer. And then every ruler from him, every ruler all of them together. And commentators like to speculate, well, could it be a Zerubbabel? Could it be some other king that comes along? But it's really looking to that ruler among all rulers whose army becomes an army of millions trampling down all the foes as it began on Pentecost with the apostles proclaiming the gospel. And we read about it in the rest of the book of Acts and we see it still ongoing today as men and women are transferred from the darkness into the kingdom of light. might thirdly notice in verse 7 the word Ephraim. And Joseph is mentioned in verse 6, and Joseph was, had two sons with Manasseh and Ephraim, and those are the leading tri tribes in the northern kingdom. And they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians in, in 722 B.C. And the Assyrians were known to be a brutal people without any mercy. And one of the things that was fairly unique to them is they conquered a the land. They wanted to make sure that that nation never, ever existed again. So they would kill a large proportion of the population and they would scatter the rest 
so they could not reform. They never again would be a nation to challenge the Assyrians. And so that's what happened to those 10 northern tribes as they got scattered. And so the natural question, is God going to do anything more for those northern tribes that were wayward from the very beginning and suffered a much worse fate than the south? We'll look at the promises. They're almost identical to those of Judah. Ephraim's going to become a mighty warrior. There's going to be gladness and rejoicing. Uh, the children are going to be happy. He's going to gather them from afar. They're going to remember their God. They'll be greatly increased. So great that they're spilling over the borders of the nation. And you could ask historically, when did that happen? Because we can see when the southern kingdom came back. You know, it paved the way for the Messiah, but there's not nothing with the northern tribes. Well, we see it as we read the book of Acts. And where, where are those Jews scattered to? Well, we find them in Thessalonica. You find them in Antioch. You find them in Rome. As they become Christians or coming back to the God of the Bible, to the true God. Well, the third point is how and why does this happen? How is it taking place? Is it something that the people have done? After several chastisements, are they finally learning their lesson and beginning to, to be righteous and seek holiness? Uh, to be doing these things uh, because uh, they're now a very spiritual people. We'll look down through Verse 3, I will punish leaders. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. Verse 6, I will save the house of Joseph. Verse 6, I will bring them back. Verse 6, I will answer them. Verse 8, I will whistle for them. Verse 8, I will gather them. Verse 8, I will redeem them. Verse 10, I will bring them home. Verse 10, I will bring them to the land of Gilead and Lebanon. Verse 12, I will make them strong in the Lord. Eleven times in the chapter, God is saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. If there's anything that's certain from this chapter, is God is the one who's going to do it. It's not going to be by their strength and their power. Or they're cunning. God does it. And notice the seven times God is named, it's Lord in all capitals. The covenant God. But he is also called the Lord of hosts as well. And why? Why does God do this? Verse 6. I will bring them back because I have compassion. 
It wasn't that they were found outstanding in the sight of God. It's not that we're found outstanding in the sight of God or that you're smarter than your neighbor or you're more spiritually aware than others in your family who do not know Christ. It comes back to the covenant character of God that he establishes the relationship. And if you go back to to chapter 9, verse 11, and a verse I really didn't highlight, as you all remember so well from four months, six months ago, whenever it was I preached, but it talked there about the blood of the covenant. It reminds us of all that Christ uh, did when he used, as we would often use it in the Lord's Supper, that points to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, his dying in our place, his blood being shed for our sins. That they're covered over. And so it comes back to the merciful nature of God and the compassion of God. And how marvelous that is. Let me suggest two applications. Uh, One is uh, whenever you uh, would be celebrating the Lord's Supper, you'd be remembering how the Old Testament is all pointing forward. And all these images are pointing to one who's going to come as a prophet, priest, and king who gives his life for our sakes. And you draw strength and grace. Second, I encourage you to, to be men and women of faith. And how do you show that? One very simple way is to pray. Think of what are the two most critical issues in your life right now? And some would maybe say, well, you know, it's five, it's my children, you know, whatever. But what do you do? Ask the Lord to be fervent in prayer. Let me suggest uh, one other thing to be praying for. And I go back to something Roy Blackwood told me, talking about when they started praying for a second congregation in Indianapolis? His answer was, before this congregation was formed, he was already thinking and praying about where should the next one be. And I encourage you to 
to think and pray along those lines. You may be thinking, well, we need to get stronger ourselves. But it's not too early to begin praying. What would you like to see in Indianapolis? To begin praying for that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the encouragement we have in your word, an encouragement to trust you, an encouragement to, to be faithful in prayer, that prayer that is offered to the one who makes the, the clouds and brings the storms, to the one who has set the uh, sun and the moon and stars in their place, the one who gives life and breath to all. that we are to bring those things on our hearts to you through Christ. And, and we're thankful that you've already given us the greatest thing we need, redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. We give thanks uh, for him, for his willingness to come to earth, his taking our sins upon him so that we could be seen in a whole new light, so we could be seen with his righteousness, blameless and without spot or blemish. Help us to be living that out each and every day. We pray in Christ's name, amen.